We're still in the Gospel of Mark. We're going through it and looking at various episodes in the life of Christ. There are two in this particular text. They're known as the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And then the second one there in chapter 11 of Mark is the passage that tells us about the cleansing of the temple there in Jerusalem. So let's hear now the word of the Lord. The they here is Christ and his 12 disciples and a huge throng of pilgrims who have come with Christ to the festival, the Passover festival in Jerusalem, and they've been coming all the way up from Jericho. Jericho's on the Jordan River Valley. Jericho is 2,600 feet uh, below Jerusalem. And it's an 18-mile trip. They've been walking 18 miles, climbing 2,600 feet in elevation. And they're going to Jerusalem for the festival. Interesting thing is, they also are showing the life of Israel's history. You remember the first thing when they entered Canaan, they fought the Battle of Jericho. And then as time went by and years went by all through the Amphictyony and the early king period, David finally established the city of God, the capital there in Jerusalem. So that little treat was sort of a little tour. It was also the same road that the, the man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Remember the Good Samaritan story? This is the same place they're coming. That's not the sermon. This is, I, need to, I need to read the scripture first. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside of the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And now we skip down to verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they, uh, came, they went out of the city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
In classic Christology, we think of the work of the Lord, His redemptive work, in terms of occupying three offices. Now, the word occupy doesn't mean just simply to hold or to occupy like you would occupy a building or occupy a space. It means to do with it what's supposed to be done. So to occupy is to fill a function and to do certain things. And the Lord in His redemptive work, He occupied three offices. That's how everything He did for us, He did it as an officer, as an official occupying an office. And the three offices, I think most of you could pass the quiz on this, at least get two out of three. The, the offices are prophet, priest and king. Okay, I think you'd all made a 100 on that. And that's the way we sort of think of the work of Christ. Is Christ here working in his kingly office? Is he doing something royal? Is he doing something in his official place as the king of kings and lord of lords? Is he the head of the kingdom of God? Is he the one that sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over all? Or is he doing something in his priestly office? Is he making a sacrifice? Is he offering himself as a sacrifice? Is he shedding blood? Is he doing uh, intercession? And, and is he doing a priestly function? The other office is the prophet, priest, and king. It's prophet. In the office of prophet, he declares the word of God. In fact, the Bible says that he's the last prophet. In time past, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in all kinds of ways. But in this last days, God speaks to us by a son. So he's the spokesman for God, the last and final spokesman for God. And so in this office of prophet, priest, and king, he operates and does the things he does. And I would like to submit that he generally functioned that way throughout his earthly ministry. It's, uh, it was a ministry that you can analyze in a number of ways, but you can see it in terms of doing something as a prophet, as he does here, he teaches down there in uh, verse, uh, uh, whatever it is, I can't hardly see it, or 17. Uh, he's a prophet. He is a priest. One of the duties of a whole cohort of the sons of Levi was that they were to cleanse the temple. And the temple was always a mess. That area around there with the, the bloodshed and the burning of the wood and the fire and the burning of the carcasses and the hauling off of the bones and the keeping of the, of the various parts of the sacrifice that were edible. It was a bloody mess. And it took a whole cohort, a whole section of the sons of Levi to constantly keep that temple cleaned up and policed up and keep it people where it could come, where they could have the daily rituals and the, the various things that happened all the way from the early morning praise and sacrifice all the way to the evening or daily basis, weekly basis. There were things that were done by the moon or by the month, and then there were things that were done annually. So we see that priestly function was cleansing the temple. And then he had a kingly function, a royal function. The royal function was that he would present himself to his people as their king and as their leader. And in this passage, you can see Jesus working in all three of those offices, performing one or another function of those particular offices. Now, the thing that binds these two passages together, besides the chronology, one happened one day and one happened then the following uh, a day or so in, in the chronology, but the thing that really holds them together is the fulfillment of Scripture that they represent. And that particular passage, or several, but that particular passage is found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. 
This was a prophecy that Malachi, who was a pro- one of the last of the prophets, the writing prophets before the great period of silence between the Testaments, Malachi writes in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That well may speak of John the Baptist. He does in another place in this particular book. But listen, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And that's what you see. Did you notice in the reading of the text that Jesus went to the temple on the first day, the day that he rode in? And then he also went to the temple then on the next passage when he went in there to cleanse the temple. Jesus had a ministry at that temple. He was in the temple environs when he was just an infant. His mother and dad brought him there. That's where they met Simeon, Anna, and, and, and that. He started his life in the temple. When he was a 12-year-old boy, even though they lived 100 miles to the north, they made a pilgrimage when he was age 12. And he was in the temple and loved it so much they couldn't get him out of the place. And his parents headed home, got a day's journey, and realized they didn't have him with their group and had to go back and get him. And he said, don't you know I'm going to be about my father's business? His business was in the temple, and he loved it, and that's where he was. And then later we see Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple, coming and going in his Judean ministry. He never passed up an opportunity to be either very near or in the temple with his teaching and preaching and, and, uh, and healing miracles and things of that sort. So we see that Jesus now is coming to his temple in fulfillment of this prophecy. He will suddenly come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priest. Those are the people you read about in the New Testament. The chief priest and the Levites, the Sanhedrin. These were men who were of the priesthood, especially, of course, the high priest and his family. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as it was in the days of old and in former years. That's the prophecy of Malachi about Jesus coming to the temple. And so we come now to these two episodes of Jesus coming to the temple. The first one that we look at is the, tri- the, the triumphal entry. It's the first 11 verses. Uh, all the Gospels record this. It's recorded here in Mark. It's in Matthew chapter 21. It's in Luke 19. It's in John chapter 12. And we all recognize it because this took place on the first day of the week before the what we call Passion Week, where Jesus suffered all the things that he suffered and the things that took place then on Thursday night with the Last Supper and the Friday morning, the trials and the hearings and then the crucifixion, his burial on Friday night, his resting in the tomb all day on the Sabbath the next day, and then his resurrection on Sunday, the first day of the week. So you recognize the events of this week. This is the, the day exactly one week before uh, the resurrection. So there's going to be a lot of things happening. In in fact, as you know, most of the material in the Gospels deal with the period that happened during this short period of time. A lot of things Jesus said and did, but they all go into a lot of detail of things that Jesus said, sermons he preached, Olivet Discourse, lots of things were all done within this 
one week of time at the very climax of his ministry, something he had said early in his ministry, my hour has not yet come. At this point, his hour has come. He's moving now steadfastly toward the cross. So what we see in this particular episode is Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, is with the pilgrim throng. He's been in Jericho. He's been preaching in Jericho. The massive crowds have been gathering because they're getting ready to make this pilgrimage. Many of them probably had already begun the pilgrimage and taken off. And you remember there as he left Jericho, he, he healed a blind man, blind Bartimaeus. Another thing he did was he met a fellow by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, you know, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And the Lord said, come down. He said, today salvation has come to your house. And so he probably has old Zacchaeus with him and Bartimaeus and who knows how many other people, his disciples, and they're making the, the trip, now the pilgrimage, the annual pilgrimage for the Passover events toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus, when they get almost to Jerusalem, one of the little outskirt communities is a uh, community called Bethpage. And uh, there was another one called Bethany. And of course, Bethany was the town of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just right about this uh, period of time, late in his ministry. So here comes Jesus. And you'd think that Jesus would walk on in with the group and be part of the group. But Jesus did something he never did any other time in his ministry that we can identify. He staged an event. He set it up. When he was feeding the 5,000, they were there and he was stuck with 5,000 people and he had some loaves and fishes and he fed the 5,000. When he calmed the waves and the wind, those came up and he had to calm the waves and the wind. When all the other things happened in the life ministry of Jesus, you know, when he met someone here, when he did a miracle there, it was because that's where they were. This one, he set it up. He got his disciples to do something. He said, go and find a little animal and he'll be tied up and untie that animal. And if anybody says to you, where are you taking this animal? Say, the Lord has need of it. Now, the language is ambiguous. It could be the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord, or it could be just the Lord and master, the owner of the animal. Either way, he said, tell them that and tell them they'll re you'll return it because we need it. The Lord has use. He has need for it for a short period of time. Jesus was going to set up a scenario, a scene. And the scene he was going to set up, let me, let me describe it to you as best I can. The animal that Jesus called for was a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, if you, those words are kind of technical. A colt is a little horse. And that's literally what the word is. It, it says a little horse. But it was the foal, which is the word for the offspring, a little uh, child, <laughs> offspring, of an ass, not a horse. It was an offspring of a donkey. In fact, what the little animal was, interestingly enough, was a small, young mule. I don't know how many city slickers in here there are, but you folks that know something about the farm know that the way you get a mule is you breed an ass with a horse. And what you get is a mule. And it's an, a unique and an incredible animal. When I have time to preach on this, I tell you all about what mules do. And you know, they're, they're steadier than a horse, they're stronger than a horse, they're stubborn, they're tough, 
And this country was built on mules. That's how they brought everything out of the mines. That's how they climbed the mountains. That's how they went in and out of canyons. That's what the U.S. Army spent all of its time hauling people. And I go on and on about mules. And my granddad had three, and I plowed two of them when I was a kid. And, and uh, it was just an exciting thing. But, but a mule is a remarkable animal. It's so remarkable, in fact, that King David, the Bible says that King David's son rode on white mules. And in fact, when King Solomon was, was coron, coronated, they placed him on David's mule. David had a white mule that was the symbol of what? Of royalty. They lived in the hill country. They didn't need a horse stumbling around. A horse will do good out there on the prairie, but you put him in the mountains and the cliffs, and he need, you need a mule. And that's what King David had. He lived in the hill, hills of Judea. And that's what he had. He had a mule, a white mule. Now, this fulfills prophecy as well. If you go back to the Old Testament, when, when uh, the people were still in Egypt and they were getting ready to go and Jacob was, uh, was getting uh, old and about to die, Jacob brings all of his sons in. Remember, and he blesses them. He pronounces a benediction or an oracle or some kind of pronouncement upon them. Wasn't altogether positive in a lot of cases. But he took all of his sons all the way from, from Reuben the first all the way down to, to Joseph the baby. Had them all in there. When he got to Judah, his, his son Judah, this is what uh, Jacob said in his oracle concerning Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the king. Judah is going to be the royal tribe. It's going to be the kingly tribe. It's going to be the tribe out of which the king will eventually come. Started off, it was Saul. He was the uh, uh, Cush of Benjamin. He wasn't the one that fulfilled the prophecy. David was. David was the one God made the covenant with. David is the ideal king. David is the shepherd king. And so this was, is uh, just uh, uh, about 500 years before David, Jacob is given this oracle concerning Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler, uh, the, uh, ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. What in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus told us what it meant. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Here is a picture of the royal king of Israel with a foal, a colt, a little small mule, and he's bound to the vine, to the vineyard. The vineyard in the Old Testament symbolizes over and over the nation of Israel. And he says, untie him and bring him because I have a use for him. And the use was for to make a demonstrable impression upon the people that he would ride in on this little white mule. And it was important, Jesus said, that you need to get one that's never been ridden. Because in the Old Testament, back in the book of, of uh, Exodus, I think it is, it may have been Numbers, uh, there was a, a place where if you had any use of any kind of animal, for sacred use, sacred duties, 
It must be an animal that had never been broken, that had never been ridden, that had never been used. It must, it must be a holy an animal. So Jesus specified that it had to be this kind of animal, and it had to be untied, and it had to be brought to him as a sacred use. So now Jesus is making this demonstration. Now when they, when they line them up to do that, Jesus creates a scene in his uh, uh, pageantry, and that's what I think this was a piece of, of good holy pageantry. He, he sets a scene that the people were quite familiar with. And in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Remember the, the oracle of Jacob talked about something coming. It said tribute is coming. It's Shiloh is coming. It's always been kind of difficult to understand what all that means. But, but, but that is the, the place of, of royalty and of peace. Shiloh is derivative from shalom, peace. In other words, you've got a prince. Just like David's son rode on the white mule, the prince, the son of David, is going to ride on a white mule. And they are kings or princes. Jesus is the prince of peace. And peace is another one of those synonymous words with salvation. It said, behold your king, because he is humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and war from Jerusalem and the, the battle shall be cut off. They're going to stop all the battle and he shall speak peace to the nations. That's Christ preaching the gospel. Preaching and speaking peace to the nations is the, the great commission that Jesus came to fulfill according to the, to the Isaiah servant song. And now they're going uh, to take that message themselves eventually and look at the very next phrase the last phrase of that paragraph he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth these people when they saw Jesus riding in and they knew their scriptures these were faithful pilgrims and certainly the priests that were observing and the the others they knew their scriptures and they could see the imagery, the symbolism. Some people claim Jesus never made any claims to royalty or deity or even made claims of, of, uh, that He was the Messiah. This was a wide open, visible claim. He was taking up all of those signs and those, those, those shadows and types of the Old Testament in his own person in this event as he rode in. And the people recognized it for exactly what it was. Because here's what they did. And by the way, I didn't mention, but they, they said the way they saddled him up was they put their cloaks on him. And, uh, and some put the, the palm branches or the, or the branches down for, before him. But they put the cloaks on him on the, on the mule so Jesus could sit on that. And this is exactly what they did when King Jehu returned from victorious battle back in the Old Testament. They put their cloaks down before him so that he could be honored and protected. And so that's, that's where they, they saddled up Jesus and, and he rode in. Now it wasn't a very long ride because he was already at the edge of Jerusalem and he just goes through the gates and, and comes down through. But notice how the people react. And those who went before him and those who were following him were shouting. 
So we have not only just pageantry, but we have a parade and we have the people responding. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Think they didn't know what they were looking at? And by the way, here they're quoting Psalm 118, which was one of the Hillel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. And they would often sing these psalms. And so there they pulled the psalm out to sing in praise to Jesus. And the word Hosanna means save us. Save us now. Save us please. It's a prayer. It's a plea. It's a shout. It's a cry. A plaintive cry to the Lord for salvation. And this is what Jesus, of course, was coming to do. And he entered the temple. And when he had looked around at everything. This is the king. He's on an inspection tour. That's what, that's what the, you know, the military, when the, when the, when the uh, commanding officer shows up or the or even a higher rank than the one that's your commanding officer of whatever outfit you're with, there's inspection time. There's review. There's analysis. There's presentation. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was exercising his office to inspect the temple. What's going on here? What does this look like? What's happening? And it says here, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. By the way, Bethany's where he spent the night, those few nights during that week, in, in, in seclusion. And, and the last couple of nights in complete hiding. That's why Judas had to, who knew where he would hide out there in the Mount of Olive area, in the, in the wooded area around that little village. They knew that's where he'd be. That's where they could get him. And so Judas made the, the, uh, the deal with the uh, council to betray him and find him in his hiding place. He goes out with his disciples. I'll bet he was tired. <laughs> if it, I don't know how much they marched that one day from Jericho, but may, may have done the whole trip in one day. It could be done, but it'd be quite a, quite a journey. But he was tired. Now we pick up here quickly in verse 15. And he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overwhelmed the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Well, I think most of you know quite a bit about this temple. This is Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple that was built after the people returned from Babylonian captivity. But that temple was pretty pitiful. <laughs> it was a pretty pitiful temple. And the old man that had seen Solomon's temple... When they saw the temple, they finished it in, uh, in Zerubbabel's day. The, the old men cried. They wept because the glory of this latter temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was nothing compared to the splendor of Solomon's temple. Yet, the promise was made by the prophet that this temple would have a greater glory. And of course, the greater glory would be that Jesus would be in this temple. This would be the temple that would house Christ. This is the temple that Jesus would come to. This is the temple that would be the theater, the arena of so much of the meaningful teaching and ministry of Jesus that would set it forward. This is the temple that regrettably would be destroyed in 40 years because it had served its purpose. But what, what Jesus was looking at there upon this inspection was something pretty, uh, pretty ominous actually. 
there were four markets out there in, in uh, Bethpage near the edge of Jerusalem uh, going toward the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives. There were four huge animal markets where people could buy sacrificial animals. <clears throat> Instead of bringing their animal all the way from Jericho or all the way from Capernaum or Nazareth or all these places they came from, many of them would bring their would buy an animal when they got there, but a lot of them wouldn't. They would bring their, the firstling of their flock. But when they got there, it wouldn't pass inspection. And so the priest would say, this animal's not good enough. So they would buy your animal for peanuts. And then they would sell, and then they would tell you you needed to go buy an official approved animal. And then you would go over to the market and you'd buy an animal there, whether it was a, a lamb or a pigeon or any, whatever animal needed for the sacrifice. And you'd pay an extortionate rate for that animal. And then you would come back and it would be inspected again and it would be approved and it was one that could be used. But hold it, you can't make this transaction with your old money, your old Roman money and your old Greek money your denarii and drachma and all that's no good in this town. you got to have temple money. You have to make this transaction with temple shekel. So you had to go to the money changers. And the money changers then would change your pagan money into holy money at an extortionate rate. So we had two operations going. We had, a, we had an animal market and we had money changers. There's one other thing happening that's not delineated here, but it's spelled out in the processes of the Old Testament. And that is, this was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was a huge outer court area because Herod had expanded Jerubbabel's temple to an incredible amount. Multiple acres, huge uh, courtyards, porticos, all kinds of residences. The Romans had come in and put the Tower of Antonio right there in the big middle where they could put a tower up where Caesar could watch what's going on in worship. Make sure everybody was wearing their mask. You know, that was, that was, that was what Rome did. They had put their little piece right there in the middle of the temple. And uh, so now what's going on is, is an operation. They were also obstructing with their enterprise. They had set up a market, not out on the Mount of, not out on the, uh, uh, Mount of Olive area, but they had put one right up in the court of the Gentiles. The Jewish leaders didn't care about the court of the Gentiles anyway. It was kind of a place they didn't really care for. And so they had set up the animal pens and the money changers in this outer court. And not only that, it was such a busy operation that it restricted the flow of the Gentiles coming through there to transverse across to get close. They couldn't go into the temple area, but they could get closer. And so they were stopping, they were impeding the Gentile entry into the holy place. You think about that for just a minute. How does that go against the heart of God? God's heart is to have the whole world, the peoples, glorify God and, and hear the gospel and believe in God and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Jews were impeding the very point of having an open door court. So they were impeding. They were carrying vessels, actually, back and forth across. When, when Jesus came and saw what was going on, the Bible tells us what He did. And... Um, let me just make a comment about that. All my life, I have heard people criticize Jesus. You know, Jesus lost his temper. He got mad. He got angry. He 
planted a whip and he beat the living daylights out of the people and he did this, he drove them out and on and on, you know, the person like that's unstable, the person like that is violent and I've heard Christ critiqued by the, by the scoffers on this one point. And then they, Christians defend him and say, oh no, 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 it was righteous anger, it was indignation, he, 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 he saw what he saw and he, it made him mad, but it was mad, it was, he was angry because it was a good righteous indignation. And there's some truth to that, of course, but let me just tell you what Jesus did and didn't do. First of all, he said he platted a whip, a big old heavy thongs of leather like he was lacerated with a few days later. No. He plaited a whip of cords. He took the soft ropes that were used gently on the animals to lead them, to make, the, to make various halters and various bridles and various reins. And he plaited cords. And let me tell you what he didn't do. I just made a list of it as I was thinking about it. The first thing he did not do was to lead a rebel force, an army, a group of terrorists. He didn't bring Peter and his sword and, and all the rest of them, Judas with his Iscariot, with his dagger, he didn't bring anything, just by himself. He did not kill anyone. He did not maim anyone. He did not injure human nor animal. He did not harm a person. He did not burn anything. He did not plunder anything. He did not destroy any property. He did not interfere with the temple's sacred rituals. This all went on out in the court of the Gentiles, not way on up in the other courts closer to the temple of where the things, the sacrifices and the prayers and all were actually taking place. He didn't take any money. He didn't pick up one single dropped drachma and put it in his pocket. He did not profit in any way from this. Here's what he did. He turned over the tables with the money in it and he drove the animals out of the courtyard you know how hard it is to drive animals you walk up to a herd of cows out in the pasture and you just go boo and they'll turn and kind of run that's all it takes almost all domestic animals are like that you don't have to whip them and and beat them and all of that Jesus just simply moved them out of the way got them out of there he really was not even resisted. The thing he had going for him was the conscience of the people. They had their own conscience. They knew. In fact, they hadn't been doing this very long. The best we can tell, the high priest that year was Caiaphas. He's the one that condemned Jesus. But his father Annas, or Anna, had, or had, uh, had uh, put this operation into business somewhere around 29 to 30 A.D. This this, this, this court market that was right up next to the temple that was impeding the Gentiles, that was, that was extorting the people, was taking business away from the free marketeers out in the other four markets. And they, were, they had a franchise business going right there. And it was, it was done by the high priest himself, and it had only been in operation more, not more than a couple of years. It was brand new. Here's what had happened. The filthiness of the defilement of God's house had reached its peak. This particular high priest, Caiaphas, ended up being the most wicked, most corrupt, most ungodly of every high priest they had had in lineage. And they had had a few corkers down the road. 
This was the one that would condemn Jesus. Jesus had every prerogative and every right. And he quotes Isaiah 56. He says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's where Jesus was headed. He was headed to give Himself as a sacrifice in order that humanity might be redeemed. In order that men and women might be saved. In Hosea 9.15, the prophet says, Speaking of of, of the Lord, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. My God will reject them, for they have not listened to Him. Here the Lord is teaching in the temple every day, teaching, teaching, preaching, pleading, begging, cursing, blessing, just, and they don't listen to Him. Haven't listened to Him at all. There's a deaf ear to the preaching and the teaching of Christ. And that was part of the reason. And then, of course, we're well well known. uh, Psalm 69 says, Zeal for thy house has consumed me. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is restoring the holiness. He is restoring the, the purity of God's house. Just driving out the animals. Just dumping over the tables. And by the way, those guys reached down in that old pile of coins and picked up 30 pieces of silver and bought Judas to betray Christ. But what Jesus is doing is He knows it's going to take more than a soft, plaited cords. It's going to take His own lashings that He will receive. That bruise that mark, that scourging, that wound that will smite Him. He is bearing our sins in His body. And when God takes a blow at sin, which He despises, He does it to a body. And it's the body of Christ. So Jesus is on His way to be the supreme sacrifice. To be the supreme high priest and to be our savior he speaks he's a prophet we should listen he makes atonement for us he paid the price of our sin and purged and cleansed us with his own body and still continues by his own spirit to purge his church his temple by discipline and reproof and admonition and he's a king he rules we don't make him king but we do submit to him we do bow before him we do come to him in humble repentance and faith 